0: If you are a teacher, parent, administrator, student, and or anyone who loves reconnecting children with nature, and you want to figure out how to cultivate learning gardens and nature-based curriculum, then this is the podcast, the Outdoor Classrooms Podcast. My name is Victoria Hackett. I am the founder of OutdoorClassrooms.com and the Secret Gardens Nature Classes. I love witnessing the magic that happens when children are playfully learning outdoors, observing the return of wonder and curiosity when children are interacting with nature is pure magic. This is the podcast that is going to help you capture children's interest and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies that are going to help you figure out how to use the outdoor space, your outdoor space, as a teaching tool so you can enlighten a playful learning experience for young children. Welcome to our Outdoor Classrooms community. Hello, everybody. We have Jessica Cagle here, the founder and program director of Kestrel Educational Adventures. Jessica holds a master's degree from Harvard Graduate School of Education and has a lifelong passion for playing in the woods. She has over 22 years of experience as a professional naturalist and educator, and a great love for the wildlife and lands of New England. She has also been a certified K through eight science teacher with several years of classroom teaching experience in both public and independent schools. Jessica teaches primarily through asking children questions no one knows the answer to and by asking them to design creations based on real experiences and by encouraging encouraging them to be silly, adventurous, and muddy. She loves nothing more than educating people through the relationships with wildlife. Jessica can often be found bicycling around New England or standing out in the rain watching frogs and salamanders. Jessica is certified in wilderness first aid, CPR, and a certified lifeguard. Without further ado, Jessica Kegel. Hello, everybody. We have Jessica Kegel here from Kestrel Educational Adventures. Welcome, Jessica. Hello.
1: Hi, Victoria. How are you?
0: Welcome, welcome. We are going to dive right in. I'm so excited about this interview and all that you have to share. Uh, so, before we dive into the the bulk of it, but if you could just, we could backpedal a little bit, and you can tell us a little bit about your journey before becoming a nature based educator.
1: Sure, I actually worked in psychology. I, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, and I actually worked for this really cool model called clubhouses. And I worked with people with mental illnesses and they would come into this place called the clubhouse where they work together with the staff of the clubhouse to plan activities, find each other, housing, um, support employment for each other. And I just found that as the social coordinator, I was being sought out and was myself gravitating towards Mostly leading people on adventures. So Mm. I actually took people on a bunch of hikes and even did one overnight camping trip. And I realized this is all I want to be doing because you get people who just come awake and come alive and, you know, have this level of joy that they don't have any other time. So I moved into this practice, but it was completely an accident that it became my career to found Kestrel. I, I meant to start a volunteer outreach program on vernal pools that was going to be a a, a volunteer thing that I did on the side but the, the after the first year of that I realized that wasn't going to happen
0: <laughs> it has become your passion and I mean you are truly an advocate for this this work and I think what you said in terms of when people are outside they they just come alive that it's been a theme throughout all of our interviews and and whatnot can you give us an overview of kestrel outdoor adventures
1: yeah and absolutely. all the programs that you're doing absolutely so a kestrel is actually a falcon it's the smallest falcon in north america so most people know the peregrine falcon which is the largest falcon and that we have but not all of them know the kestrel. So I actually met my first kestrel when I was working as a day-to-day per diem outdoor educator for Massachusetts Audubon at Jumlin Farm. They have ambassador animals and one of them was this kestrel falcon and they're just these beautiful little creatures. They've got all the like strength and speed and ferocity of you know, a much larger predator, but they're little. They're just like like robin-sized little fierce predators and they have these beautiful markings, including the blue streaking on their heads and the cap on the male, the blue cap. And um, I was just so Mm. inspired by the bird, I decided to name Kestrel after them symbolically. So we have a we actually have a story which we have two stories. One, our short story is that even the smallest things like the Kestrel can be really powerful. The smallest things like you and an American Kestrel can be very powerful. Um, And the other story we tell is that we're kestrels when we're outdoors. So we're perching kestrels when we're just quietly looking around because kestrels are great at perching and just paying attention. And we're soaring kestrels when we're out there in the woods in our element, gathering information and exploring and wandering around. But once we find out what question we want answered and what problem we want to solve, we are diving kestrels. And we pin our wings to our bodies and dive right down. And that's when we're making our projects and building our project so that's that's our symbolic kestrel Stone.
0: Oh, that is absolutely perfect <laughs>
1: but i was just going to answer how we've evolved over the years is yeah um that originally as i said we were the volunteer outreach arm of the cape ann vernal pond team i was a volunteer with the co-founder of kestrel nate minio who was also a vernal pond team volunteer and we just wanted to do school outreach Specifically on vernal pool ecology, and I was just out of graduate school. Um, specifically for um, environmental and project-based learning, constructivist teaching were all my focus points. So we decided to develop this curriculum for not just going out and saying, "Well, this is this and that's that in a vernal pool," but constructing understanding and knowledge through direct experience and and making original projects. And after the first year, we were told by some of the schools, "Okay, we built this into the curriculum." And I thought. Oh, well now I need now I need it to be an organization. So we went back and said, okay, we're going to found an organization. And over the years, we've realized that there's a lot more than just vernal pool ecology to be taught. So we do vernal pools, other wetlands, a little bit of coastline, um, but mostly we leave that to the other existing groups in the area. Maritime Gloucester and Salem Sound Coast Watch do a great job of that. But we do a lot of forest ecology and And wetlands, and just about six or so years ago, we added in outdoor, like outdoor skills, things like fires without matches and shelters from things that we find in the woods and compass navigation and things like that. So
0: you were explaining, we were in a, a little meeting the other day, and you were explaining the importance of using public lands, and so you... We have we here we are in the North Shore of Massachusetts and we have some beautiful public spaces. Can you just speak a little bit about that and how important that is to you and your program?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So Kestrel, one of our founding ideals is that nature-based learning through the should happen through the schools and it should happen on public land. And the reason for that is that. We want people to know that they belong in nature. All humans belong in the natural world, exploring it and living in it and moving things and touching things. And this has actually been really scientifically proven to be a really good way to cultivate a a conservation ethic and a sense of care for the environment rather than saying oh don't touch this it's their habitat it's their world you're visiting their home the idea is it's it the habitats are all interconnected the environment is all a bunch of interconnected systems and we are part of it and we don't really have any choice everything we do every breath we take every food we eat it's all connected to the natural world So we just don't want kids to have that sense of they're just visiting nature. It's a place Mm -hmm. that you're going. We want to give them the sense that it's all around you. land is part of your environment and you have a responsibility to it. And it also gives you a lot of benefit. And we want people to go back. So we don't want them to be like, oh, they maybe paid us a little bit for a program and then... That's the only time they can learn about nature. So the idea, if it's a public, always accessible, free, it has to be a free place where they can go to all the time. We find out that the kids go back, and we... A funny story is that a couple times I've been checking trail cameras that I put up with (laughs) the kids, and I was like, why are people showing up on these wildlife trail cameras we put so far from the trails and it's the kids going back with their families, taking them to show their families where they put but, the trail cameras and where they found wildlife tracks and trees they can identify and things.
0: Oh like my that. full circle. It's full circle. So just for those that are listening, uh, this is an outdoor classrooms tour and talk. So as we are speaking with Jessica, there's these gorgeous, gorgeous photos of her program which she will be describing throughout. And uh, if if you want to see the Outdoor Classrooms tour and talk, it is a part of our circle membership community. So so what's happening in these? This I, I can see because we are both in the Beverly area <laughs> and I can recognize some of these spaces. Can you describe what some of the students are doing?
1: Sure. Um, so in the first one, our young student who would be in second grade is holding up a black-kept chickadee card. So this is part of our habitat assessment program for second graders and each child actually gets matched up with an animal that they have things in common with through a sorting game that we play to help them find the animal they have the most in common with and they become like a biologist for that animal and they learn about what its specific needs are and then we go out in the woods with this little band of of biologists that may have been assigned to black-capped chickadees and spotted salamanders and long-tailed weasels and barred owls, and they have to find the specific habitat. So in that first picture, that child has found a tree cavity and has decided that chickadees need tree cavities, so this might be suitable habitat. And in the second picture is actually from our survival camp, and we harvested some cattails, and they are learning to weave them into cattail mats that can be used Wow. Um, carrying things. Some of the kids actually use them for some walls for the shelters they made. And in the third picture, I I sent that to you because we're making debris hut shelters, which is a common model in, in sort of primitive skills world. Our camp really empathizes creative freedom and imagination. And this pair of kids, you can only see one in the picture, but this pair of just two girls decided we're going to make a roll-up door. So they took some of the rope and knots oh. we've been working on and they gathered some sticks and this is like a door that rolls up oh that's and brilliant rolls, and it rolls back <laughs> down. oh that's
0: brilliant engineers in the works i love it i and love we it just, so, we have hours a
1: day at camp when they can just make things and create things
0: oh it just it makes me want to be a kid again look at these gorgeous gorgeous pictures ponding working things through and you do fires i recognize some of these kids do <laughs>
1: <laughs> we do yeah the previous picture was in beverly commons this one is that's this one is in rockport yeah, this one sorry the one before that this one um, that one yeah is in beverly commons um in a large wetland that we found out there and the kids decided they wanted to scout the wetland for um the aquatic species they could find in there
0: oh so much so much goodness
1: and this is our survival camp in Rockport, and these kids are making fire. And we, when we say the kids are making fire, they, they actually, there's a challenge we give them where they have to make a fire with no help at all. So wow. they, can, they can get all the coaching they want until they say they're ready. And then if they say they're ready and they want to go for their fire stamp, we have like a booklet with stamps, they have to gather the right wood and they they learn about the different species of trees and which ones have the right wood and when to gather it and how to gather it without harming anything. And then they have to get the fire going and keep it going for certain numbers of time depending and, on what.
0: And the age group of the kids, for just for those that are listening that can't see the picture,
1: um, it's ages seven through twelve in this
0: yeah, picture. it's amazing. What an empowerment w- shifting gears a little bit, so, in terms of philosophy and mindset, what role do you think nature education should play in public education? It's a well, heavy question, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think you know that teachers have to decide for themselves how to integrate nature into the classroom. I've been a a formal science teacher myself in in middle school um, for about five years, and I think I would like to see more teachers have the tools and the permission and the, the flexible scheduling to be able to integrate it. I don't think nature needs to be a field trip. I always avoid the word field trip and I don't think it needs to be like a place that you go to. I think you can take, now I focus on science, but as we talked about in that meeting from last week, it can really be any topic, but you can take the curriculum that you already have and most of it can be turned outdoors and not just done outdoors the same way it would be done indoors, but the natural world itself is is all the material you really need for quite a bit of content. So we have high schoolers that are doing a marsh assessment. Those are Ipswich high schoolers that do a marsh assessment. And um, throughout the year, they came out to Town Farm Marsh with us and they took water quality measures. They captured organisms in the water and identified them. And then they basically did a study on how the different pieces connected, how the salinity and the water chemistry and the animals all connected together. And that covers a lot of their Um, earth science and chemistry and biology right there and then having kids do project-based work they can you can say okay I have to do life cycles or I have to do mapping and all of this can be done really authentically by asking a question that none of you knows the answer to and you can Mm -hmm. go out and try to answer that question so for example how does the timing of the ponds filling and drying up affect the things that can live in them. So if you ask that question, it then enables the kids to start brainstorming. Well, how am I going to answer that? Well, what equipment do I need to learn to use? How do I need to be outfitted? And at the end, they can present back and say, okay, these are our findings. And it's, it's all something that the teacher could not possibly have answered before. Yeah. And I think that's the great thing about nature education playing a role in public education. So now you're taking the foundational concepts that you are supposed to teach anyway, um, you're taking the skill that most teachers want their kids to have, which is critical thinking skills, oral presentation skills, literacy skills, and you're applying them to a brand new problem, which is so exciting for teachers, because you're not just going and teaching the same thing you did last year. You're on a, a real learning adventure with your kids.
0: It's fascinating looking at this picture of these high school students to me, because all I can think of was like, is that they are on their way to college or their next phase of life and to have these skills but then this interest and that wouldn't it be fantastic if this core group then went on to school to study even further and to become even greater advocates for our earth so it's it's just such uh, incredible what programming you are are doing and it's exciting can you explain what's happening in this picture
1: Sure. This is I think Manchester third grade, I want to say. Yeah, this is the Manchester <laughs> third grade um, at Dexter Pond. And this is a ponding class we've been running for all the Manchester and Essex third graders for a long time. So we bring all the donated bog boots. Bob's actually donated for us, I think at least 50 pairs of boots, all different wow. sizes. So we show up with all the boots, and anyone who doesn't come with their own gets Kestrel boots on. And then we set up a field study station. So basically, we, and you missed that, this photo doesn't show the, like, six-foot-long telescoping nets that the kids had. And they went and scooped a bunch of little bits of debris from the pond, and then they wash it into these buckets. And what they're doing is they... You'll notice in the picture, there's no books or field guides. Um, so they're actually, they're not given any identification tools at first. So they're supposed to observe the critters they caught and then draw them in detail. And we'll even come around and say, wait, how many legs does it have? Do you What shape is the head? And they'll go back and add all the details. And once they've done that, then we take them over to the field guide station. And by this point, they can usually make the identification on their own using their own drawing. So this is oh, yeah. one to pay all this attention. And it also teaches them how, you know, different animals have different body shapes and different behaviors and things like that. And then these kids will later make a field guide to this pond, a full color field guide using their own field observations.
0: That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I just have to say uh, for those that are also listening is how engrossed and captivated each child is. I mean, there's, there's, I'm sure with all of this, you're, you're not struggling with behavior management. So with the next, what is for those that are listening that don't know, what is place-based education?
1: So I have a saying that I teach in the staff training for Kestrel instructors. It goes, if you could do it just as well in an airplane cabin at 20,000 feet, or I'm not sure how many feet planes fly it, but if you could do it just as well on a plane, you know, or just any random place, then it's not place-based education. So place-based education is education that um, at its heart is attached to a specific place on earth, and it is lessons that are shaped by that place. So instead of just learning invertebrates go through certain phases of life you would learn about the uh, invertebrates in that place instead of Mm. just learning that trees have like five parts and looking at a diagram of trees you would go out and find all the different parts of your specific kinds of trees and the benefit is that it really gives kids a love for the natural world and an attachment to a specific place in itself actually cultivates a love for the natural world itself because it's it's like awakening their their hearts and minds to what is around them and and like really grounding them in that place I hope that didn't sound too crunchy it's really an academic (laughs) No, it's
0: beautiful. It's just, and this is uh, another photo of the huts that they were
1: they were making. It's, I mean, they're really elaborate. They spend many, many hours on these shelters. So we always teach them forts are great, and we have nothing against forts, but shelters and forts are different. Shelters will protect you against weather and they'll come out each day of survival camp and say can we have some time to work on the shelters and we say okay 20 minutes and two hours later we're <laughs> like, okay, do you want lunch or not I'll eat it in my shelter <laughs> that's that's actually one of the most popular questions survival camp. can I eat in my shelter and the fun thing is after a storm sometimes they'll leave you know something in their shelter and after a storm they'll say we've got to go run and check on our shelter to see <laughs> and protect it against the storm. But it's really yeah. activating the sense of like a home in the woods. This it's like a village. Yeah. But and they're rooting themselves in this place because they really built their little home in the in the forest for the week.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So fun. So you also which I learned in our other meeting the other day that you also do uh display students work. So can you talk a little bit about why that's important, why you integrate that into your programming and how that works?
1: Well, so first of all, there's a lot of research behind it that um, project-based learning has it has some really effective, well-proven models. And I, I took some trainings on project-based learning specifically where I learned that the students being involved in substantially shaping the project at every level is important and then having an audience beyond their classmates and their teacher is a really key part of project based learning as far as having the impact on the academic skills and the social emotional skills that that most teachers want to develop so that's one of the reasons that i do it also it's just it's just so much And so it gives them so much investment Mm -hmm. um, because we're telling them like, this isn't just something you're doing just for you. People are going to see your work and they're going to learn from you. And there's going to be an audience of people you don't normally meet who can't wait to learn about the things that you found out about nature. So I think it's really important. And I also think it's really important that what they make is as some substantial creative freedom, because then they're thinking through like, what is it I want to share? How do I want to share it? What did I find in in the woods or in the wetland? And what do most people not know that I do? Because I was out there learning about it. And then we had something like 150 people came out to our last student work showcase. Wow. Um, And kids showed up from Manchester, from Essex, from Beverly, and literally, literally stood behind their work while parents. And we had funders. We had uh, one of our city councilors. Um, came out and the kids were teaching her about the local wetlands and what they had learned and it was really, they were just so
0: proud of it. So, oh, it's so, and you can just, again, we're looking at pictures of their work in journals, is in clay, all different mediums that you're using, absolutely incredible to bring, and also to bring the community together like that for, for that purpose. So, so cool. Oh, and
1: these are um, the format for this field guide that you're showing right now, the kids made the format. The more they mm. have a substantial voice in informing it um, at an age appropriate level, obviously, you have to give them some structure, but as much as possible they inform the structure, they're never gonna forget um, that material or the scientific process that went into it if they're involved.
0: And how important it is for them to make these identifications of their surroundings and so they can eventually be advocates and taking care of it. That's sort of, it, it comes full circle.
1: And look how closely they had to look at those animals to make yeah drawing. So it slows them down. Like they can't just scribble, you know, they have to really stay there, like hang out with this diving beetle yeah. for like many minutes to get all that detail on it.
0: But I think also doing it and knowing that it's going to be displayed and that people there's, it's, it's, it gives it more, it's like. Oh, it's not just a scribble. It's actually, it's something that's going to be presented. So it it gives a whole nother dimension and energy around it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Do you believe that we have time? To- and know there's a lot of pushback. Uh, we uh, feel it, but I think you and I both. Awesome. <laughs> And many, many educators that are listening uh, feel the pushback in terms of we don't have time for nature based education with all of the pressing issues and needs that we need that students need to be presented with and whatnot what what's your theory, philosophy,
1: insight regarding that well we don't have time not to have nature education yeah. we just don't, we don't we don't we don't have time for a generation that is cut off from the natural world and um it does take more time because you have to put on boots and you have to you know put on gloves and hats when you're doing it in the winter but really i actually found as an educator that it didn't use up more time in the long run as far as depth of knowledge if you're teaching your content and your curriculum using not just being outdoors but using the natural world they're actually really really learning it and they're and they're keeping it so i think We absolutely have time because you don't have to reteach it and you don't have to worry to really learn it. And you know, it can be progressive. They're from first grade through high school, rather from preschool through high school, um, they're learning skills that build on each other and that build on themselves. And so you're not like starting over with every grade because they've learned things like protocols for observation and protocols for recording and protocols for sharing. And all of these are things we want them to have by the end of high school. So why not why not start and keep it going the whole time? And if you do it out, outdoors, they pretty much always want to do it. So, I mean, it, I think it saves a lot of time on redirecting behaviors and things like that, too.
0: Yeah, and there's so much research in terms of the benefits and what kids are getting and and whatnot. And I think we're probably, if you're listening, you you all know that. So, I, I love love your answer because we don't have time not to do it so but what about i know educators will also be thinking about the mess and the unpredictability and the risk oh i'm afraid of x y and z and that just the experience is being inconsistent what is your theory and thought on that well it is is important. that is important. Just ask these three. I mean, yeah, we're looking at three pictures of uh, some some students in in the mud.
1: There is a lot of mud, and I mean, even I, who is you know, I've spent over twenty years of my life advocating for mud. Sometimes I admit, I'm like, oh my god, you are so muddy. Did you have to get that far <laughs> into the mud? My my best advice for the mess and the mud is get a hose. Put it outside (laughs) and, like, walk by that hose before you go inside because I don't like my indoor spaces covered in mud either, but it's it's worth it. And, I mean, if you're going to let them get muddy, they're going to want to do anything you're teaching them, first of all. A hose pretty much... Cures all problems with mud. As far as risks, I'm am, I'm am a huge proponent of safety. I mean, I I think that it's really important not to allow to to be really really well prepared against serious um, injuries. And I think some physical risk is really, really important. You've got to let kids get scraped knees and scraped elbows, but you don't want serious injuries. So if, but if you don't allow them to have managed risk, then they're going to do stuff outside of school. That's, that's even more risky because they're not used to managing it. So we do a lot of practice. We are always practicing how we move, how we move in boots, how we move in wetlands. Um, and we do a lot of you know, from little kids all the way up through high school of of role-playing ways to be safe before we approach each each hazard. And it's really not an unmanageable thing to do. If you're going tide pooling, you practice with your nets and your boots in the grass before you go out there. If you're going wading in the mud, we do the same thing. So I do think that the risk can be managed and the risk is going to be there no matter what. It's just a matter of whether it's on your watch where you can protect them or not, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think oftentimes we're doing students a, a disservice because we are protecting them from, it's our own fear, and that we're not allowing them, we're not introducing them to risk and, and how to deal with it. So it's, I love that you are saying that it should be practice. It's a practice thing that we can do with, with students. Uh, so what you had mentioned earlier the word constructivist. And can and that was a lot of the foundation of your of your learning and teaching. So can you describe that for folks that may not understand it?
1: Sure, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it from a course on Eleanor Duckworth, who's one of the leading education theorists for constructivist education, as well as David Sobel. So I recommend reading the works of both of those authors. The, we have our own sort of special brand of constructivist constructivism and the key is that it's not completely a theory of teaching as much as a theory of learning you don't totally have a choice to be a constructivist teacher or not because constructivism is really the way brains work so the way brains work is they they synthesize they put together the concepts and knowledge that that brains have based on all of our pre-existing ideas and then our experiences in the world and the way that our experiences come into play with our pre-existing ideas. So you um, think a certain thing and then the thing that you think like comes up against a real world situation and your brain will change you know based on how that works. So if you're a constructivist teacher which is weird because I know I just said it's a learning theory but if you're a constructivist teacher then what you do is you want to know what your students think before you start teaching them. So you have to know what they think. You honor and accept that they all think different things. You you expect that when they learn a certain concept, like take water cycles or habitat-specific needs that animals have, you're going to see them come away with a very different sort of picture or system knowledge of how that works. Every single child is going to come away with a different working model and that's good. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because that means that their brain assembled that from their own experiences. So you go out and you find out what they think and then you pose challenges um, and experiences that will push that level of knowledge. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. because they have a misconception and sometimes they just need more understanding of the concept. So for example, I taught a lot of kids who were learning about the water cycle and they would say evaporation, condensation, transpiration. And we would go outside and we'd say, okay, where does the rain go when it falls on the ground? And they'd be like, I don't don't know. Where does it fall? So we'd say, okay, let's go to this pond. Can you find where the water comes in? Can you find where it goes out? Can you make a little boat out of sticks and leaves and see how it moves? Can we get maps and, like, find all the water inlets and outlets. And then after you will do all of that, after each, you know, period of learning, you say, okay, how does the water cycle work? And you keep asking them and watch how their knowledge of that idea kind of gets put together.
0: Oh, it's Matt. I want to be a kid in your program. (laughs) I'm learning so much. It's amazing. (laughs) So again,
1: what's happening in this little picture? So we love nature at Kestrel, but we like technology too. And we like technology that will get you closer to nature. So this is one of our favorite things. It's a wildlife trail camera. Mm. Um, So our conservation club and our survival camp and our whole Rockport fifth grade program heavily use the set of trail cameras that we have. The kids um, look at maps or they hike and scout the whole area and they look for tracks and game trails and feeding signs um, to look at where they think there's going to be wildlife activity. And then they put up the cameras and they monitor them. And these kids actually learn to take the little data cards out and to to look through all the video and then that teaches them things about what lives there that they would never uh, we, we get a lot uh, of fishers we never see fishers in class we see them on the cameras and then the kids know that fishers were using that spot
0: huh but can you give a tip uh, what type of camera is that just in case they want to get one
1: well you know, that you know? one i can't identify from this picture but we have <laughs> we use cam park a lot and uh browning is i think the other one that's a really good game cam, you can get a decent one for 50 or $60. Um, you can level up for teaching. I'd say for $80, you can get really solid, really good. Mm,
0: that's awesome. Thank you for
1: sharing it. That. That's awesome. So if you were to give one seed of inspiration or a tip for an educator or a parent, what would that be? My tip would be involve your kids in your plans from the beginning, have a structure for for taking their input. I'm not You know, just approaching them with no ideas in mind. I usually have some kind of format for taking their input, whether it's just a discussion or a chart or skits that we do, that we put together. Find some way that you've planned to have them uh, generate ideas. Once they start generating ideas, then kids are so on board with with the adventure that Mm. you're because you're not doing it, you're not leading them completely or doing something to them. You're doing it with them and. I don't really know that many kids that, you know, out of the thousands and thousands that I've taught that don't want to generate adventures with with their grownups.
0: That's fantastic. I love that answer.
1: Is there anything else we, we would like to share that we haven't covered? Kestrel is looking for, after many years of our model being, let's have an office somewhere in town and then travel around. We want to keep, with the, keep up the traveling around, but we'd really like to have a home base where we can have some of, some home-based programs so that kids can develop a really long-term relationship with that place. So if anyone knows anywhere, especially in the Beverly area with access to public wild spaces, that we can have a a home base. Uh, We're really hoping for a home base in Beverly, Massachusetts that has some kind of indoor structure where we can keep our trail cameras and recharge our our two-way radios that we use and all our craft supplies and nets and buckets and boots and things like that. One of my favorite things about having a home base that is accessible to the wild is that our our clubs, especially the conservation club, they show up and they say, okay, we're going in the wetland today. And I say, what do you need? And they say, okay, six of us need boots and we're going to need four nets. And I say, okay, go ahead. And they can go into the the mm. room, And that teaches them so much about the scientific process, but also about care of each other, which I think is a really core part of outdoor education. You're not just caring for the natural world, you're caring for each other, um, which um, caring for each other and caring for the natural world are things that I think really support each other. They're very, they're very self feeding. Um, mm. So I would love to have a place like that if anyone, if anyone wants to help us. That brings me to
0: the next question. Where can we find you? And if we wanted to help in any way, where could where could we find you?
1: Well, me personally, anytime between April and November in a wetland with a lot of boots on. <laughs> you know, but uh, you, can find our, you can find our website, www.kestreleducation.org. And all our contact info is on there. Our office is in Magnolia Village, um, which is a village of Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, but we are usually not there; we're usually out in the field. Our, my cell phone number is on the website, and I'm really good at answering it, so you can reach out by, via via uh, the phone number or the email. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you for everything that you are doing. It's just so. Incredible. Uh, you are such a gift to our community. I'm thrilled that our paths have crossed and it's just it's so absolutely incredible the knowledge that you are sharing and inviting and encouraging and advocating for our children. So thank you for uh all your work and you will find a home. We will all work together in finding a home for you. So um uh thank
1: you again. Well thank you, Victoria. Thank you for all the work you do to highlight the many, many different ways of, of being outdoors and nature and learning. It's, I've been, I've been having so much fun listening to your podcast. Great. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for joining us here at the Outdoor Classrooms podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anybody who you think would enjoy it and follow us on Instagram. We'd love to continue the conversation. If you want to continue the conversation even deeper, please join us in the Circle community. The purpose of the Circle is to support, guide, and push you as you continually grow and sustain your outdoor classroom by providing the tools to help you Set the right goals, then actually follow through in achieving those goals with the support our, of our amazing community. Each month, 24 7, you get guidance and support from myself. You get to begin your journey with our new member roadmap. You get access to our outdoor teaching boot camp. You get to interact and learn from guest experts who are on our podcast. They come into our membership and join us to continue the conversation. You get to connect and collaborate during two live sessions a month. You get access to all our online workshops and masterclasses. You get get to dig deeper with our membership missions each month, and you get to become an ambassador of joy for children. I hope you can join us. You get all of this. You get to become a member of our family at Outdoor Classroom. So I hope you can join us. I will share the link in the show notes and we'll see you later. Come join us.